One of the great joys of hosting Reconsidering is the opportunity to meet and talk with authors whose work has inspired and moved us. A joy that is only amplified and more deeply felt when we welcome a guest back on the show to share with us their most recent book and learnings. Recently, we've had the pleasure of reconnecting with both Kieran Sedia and Brad Stahlberg. And in this episode, we have the chance to sit down once again with author Catherine May. Catherine first joined us in 2020 during the height of the pandemic to talk about her book, Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. It was a timely topic and a memorable conversation as most of us were confronting one of the most challenging and isolating holiday seasons of our lifetimes. With that moment now thankfully behind us, Catherine has returned with a new book, Enchantment, Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age. This time around, she turns our attention to fundamental questions about how else we might live, and in particular, how might we find a way to reconnect in a quiet and intimate way with the natural and immediate world that surrounds us all. It's an important question, a wonderful book, and a rich starting point for our conversation. Thanks for listening. This is Reconsidering, a podcast about life and how to live it better. I'm Bob Baxley. I'm Meredith Black. And I'm Aaron Walter. Welcome to Reconsidering. I'm Catherine May. I'm the author of Wintering and Enchantment, and I live in Whitstable in the UK by the sea. You ready? Okay, here we go. The beginning or the end? The beginning. Color or black and white? Color. The beach or the woods? Oh, don't make me choose. The woods by a beach. Nice. The well-worn <laughs> path or the untamed jungle? Untamed jungle. Dirt or hand sanitizer? Dirt. A walk or a nap? A walk. Thunder or lightning? Ooh, thunder. Starfall or moonshadow? That's hard, starfall. Wisdom or beauty? Wisdom. Poetry or prose? I'm not allowed to fudge with these. I might prose. I do write prose, to be fair. <laughs> Enchantment or awe? Enchantment. Very nice. Thank you. Catherine, thank you so much for being on the show today. We are so excited to have you back. And you have a new book out called Enchantment. And I want to hear a little bit about what prompted you to write Enchantment and how does it relate or not to wintering and your previous book, The Electricity and Every Living Thing? Oh, thank you. That's a great question. Because actually, when it came time to write Enchantment, I initially just didn't know what I wanted to write. And I had to really spend a lot of time following paths that were dead ends before I got to that place of understanding what the book was talking about. And that was because Enchantment came from this really authentic place of what do you do when you've hit a wall, when you've got such terrible brain fog that you just don't feel like you can function. And I think like in lots of ways, it is the natural successor to wintering because it's kind of like what happens next when you've wintered, how do you come back out again? But for me, there was this very specific pandemic-based question, which was that on one hand, I'd loved loads of things about lockdowns because they took the weight off my shoulders and they were a relief in some ways. But I also hated loads of things about it and it really affected me after a while. But I knew that I didn't want to go back to life before. So the question that kind of governs the book is how do we make a good life now? And how do we make a more connected and integrated life? Which is the question I've been asking since electricity rather than the big thing. So there's a real continuity between the three, I think. And in your books, I feel like you're just like very forthcoming of like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I'm trying to figure this out. I just find that so like, I just connect with it. You know, if there's a vulnerability in your writing and the storytelling that feels, I think that's what people love about your books is they just see themselves in you and your stories. But I have absolutely no idea how you write your books. I mean, as someone who has written books before, I tend to like, I have some things like I, I've got 
a collection <laughs> of ideas that I've put together through some research and so forth. But to write your books is almost like it's almost like a high wire act where you've got to like figure it out on the fly. So could you like lift the veil and tell us a little bit like how do you do it? Well, that's a really interesting way to describe it because I do. I mean, first of all, I suppose what I'm trying to achieve is the inside of my head on the page. So I'm trying to reflect the way I think, which is very multifaceted. And I am always thinking in lots of different ways about the same subject all the time. But the way I approach it is I always see them as a learning process. I think I'd lose interest in a book if I tried to hand over what I knew. And instead, I'm following a path of exploration. And so that actually makes it really easy to do what I do in lots of ways because on one hand, I look first of all for the kind of emotional core of the book and where is that authentic, vulnerable question that I'm asking. And then I see where my attention takes me and that often takes me into looking at the science of the thing and looking at folklore around it or seeing what other writers have said or going to a place that will tell me a bit about my subject matter. And that that's what the books are, really. They're an integration of all of those things. But the challenge is, once I've done that exploration, what order to put it in, in the book? That's the bit that I get really frustrated over because I've often got, you know, like taking enchantment, I've got a passage about visiting a holy well and I've got a passage about a book that I've read about deep play and I've got a passage about me sitting with brain fog in my house and not knowing what to do next and then it feels like patchworking and putting them together and sometimes changing the order and finding a narrative within what feel like quite disparate elements i know they make sense to me but then i have to show other people how they make sense together right so it's not written linearly you're writing pieces and then piecing it together yeah i mean it was it was interesting working with the editor Jin Deling Martin at Riverhead this time because we worked really well together on Wintering but Wintering was already a complete book by the time she bought it so we did do edits but that was against quite a stable text whereas this time she felt the full force of my process and that involved lots of random chapters <laughs> being thrown at her and there was a point when she was like, I see how you work now. Okay. And I kind of thought, is that positive or negative? I don't know. I create chaos, I think, honestly, and then put it into order. And that's the only way I can really do it. It's an interesting process because you're basically collecting fragments and then trying to figure out how to build a quilt of them. And some of the other examples that I've heard of artists working that way is obviously the B-side of Abbey Road and you yes. should take that as a compliment because um, that, <laughs> that, <laughs> that was a bunch of fragments that they strung together into something that makes sense coherently. And then the movie that just won Picture of the Year here in the Academy Awards, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, they talked about that they had all these fragments of stories. And they couldn't figure out how to put it together. They started working on that movie, I think, 15, 20 years ago. So it's, it must be a challenging artistic method, but it's not completely unprecedented. I think I love the challenge of it. And I don't know, there's something about, I'm trying to find unpredictable links. I mean, that everything everywhere all at once, that's a story about unpredictability and randomness. And I think that really reflects how I love to work. I'm looking for things that shake it up and take me by surprise. But I'm just also looking at following lines of curiosity. And that means that I end up with a vastly more material than I can ever use as well. And there's always like, in fact, I've just written my next newsletter about it. So maybe by the time this podcast comes out, people will be able to read that. But about the graveyard that is left behind by my books of unused material. And often there's nothing wrong with that material. I've often spent months working on it. It's fully realized. It's reading well, but there's just nowhere it fits into that patchwork. And I just have to let it go. You know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is you're kind of telling us your learning process and how to write these books. But in Enchantment, you talk about unlearning and how important it is to start of kind of like start over. We are so obsessed with knowing everything 
Why is it so hard to start over? Yeah, I do think that we've reached an age where we are more invested in knowing the answers than ever and, and being right. I think so much of our online discourse is about being right and winning. And I look at these arguments that break out and I think, how is everyone so sure about what they know? Like, I feel so uncertain about everything I know. And that's exciting for me. You know, there's always more to find out. There's always more to discover. And yeah, it's just a space that I find deeply interesting is uncertainty and that moment when nothing is fixed yet, you know, and, and when everything's still up for grabs. I love working in that space. And so, yeah, unlearning to me is such a pleasurable thing to do to kind of strip that away. But it is hard and there's muscle memory there. But I think I'm helped in my work by the fact that I always worked in education up to now. And I worked in creativity and education. And so, so much of what I know how to do is how to take people into a space of uncertainty and work from there. It's definitely where I'm at home. <laughs> There's an interesting passage in your book that kind of illustrates this, where you and your son, Bert, are going out into the woods and you've got like all these ideas in your head of like, how you're going to look at this special tree or how you're going to talk about these birds and so forth. <laughs> and he's like playing in the mud in the car park and like not at all interested in what you have to say and what you have to teach him. And again, like I totally identified as a father of, of two young, young <laughs> boys, like they don't give a shit about what I have to teach them. They really just want to like, I don't know, follow their own bliss and I thought it was so funny because you were bringing this certainty and clarity and he kind of crushed it. And you talked about your childhood in there and how enchantment was, it's so accessible in our childhood. But as an adult, it's sort of like we need to plan the enchantment. How do you think about enchantment in adulthood and how you cultivate that more frequently? I think... In lots of ways, what I realized in that passage where I was trying to teach my son things that would enchant him, and he was rejecting it, I think what I realized is that my job as an adult is to show him that an adult can feel enchantment and can live an enchanted life rather than to give him the specifics of that enchantment. And that helps me to understand how I can get there as well, because actually my experience of those those things in life that saw me with awe or wonder or fascination or, or just feel magical and mysterious to me, they come at surprising moments. And actually, quite often when I've tried to access something, when I've tried to visit a place that's supposed to be really amazing, or when I've read a book that everyone else has told me will blow my mind and change the way I see the world forever, that's when it can often feel the furthest away. And there's something about force that makes it shrink away from you. And so as an adult, what I need to learn to be is open to it arriving. And I need to make that surrender to it rather than going chasing it. And that, I mean, that just runs in opposition to so much of the way that we're used to approaching life at the moment, which is that, you know, we must control everything, we must organize everything, we must bring it into our power. And that just makes enchantment fade and disappear. It's like an orgasm. Like if you're trying too hard to have one, <laughs> there it goes. Actually it's quite a good analogy. <laughs> might might use that later. But yeah, so actually it's about this state of receptivity that I'm trying to learn to have. What I hold in mind most of all is those magic eye drawings. Do you remember those that were really popular in the 90s where you had the pattern on the surface and you had to kind of look through it in order to see the 3D image? And to do that, you had to let go of something rather than add another layer. And, and that was the hard thing about it, was learning to let something fall from what you were doing rather than to do something to it. That's the state of mind, I think, that lets us reach that enchanted state is to like let go of the 
part of you that wants to squash it under your thumb and know it and instead to just relax into this receptivity to it being beautiful. It seems like at least in my life and in some places in your book, when we really give ourselves over and try to seek these moments of enchantment, we try to return to a simpler time, maybe the Middle Ages or some period when science wasn't quite as progressed, you know? Although I'm not a religious person, I found in my later years that there was something very moving to me about sitting in old cathedrals because I felt like I was touching something that was longer lived than me. And I wonder if this move towards certainty, because I agree with what you said, like we've just sort of gamified conversation and everything is I'm right and you're <laughs> wrong. I wonder if it's um, if it's a tension between us feeling like we know so much, but we're really living in a very uncontrolled, unknowable situation. And it's a coping mechanism. Yeah, it's an unruly age. But also it's an intellectual habit of seeking clarity when there is none. And, you know, that's rewarded, right? You don't get promoted in your job by saying, I don't know, but you do by saying, yes, I have all the answers. And it's deeply misleading because some of the most certain people are the most dangerous people. I mean, fascism has absolute clarity about how the world should run. (laughs) But this is where I find it genuinely complex. And I think it's important to acknowledge the complexity, which is that science is amazing. And I am heavily in favour of science and us understanding. But I think the problem comes when we see it as the only way to understand. And that's what's happened, I mean, maybe over the course of the 20th century, that science has become such a dominant mode of understanding that other understandings have been pushed away. Our mission now is not to go back to a simpler time, but actually to step into this very complex time we're in, where human knowledge has become extraordinary and bigger than any of us can hold. And that's why we need the internet to hold it. We had to invent the internet to kind of host this sheer weight of human knowledge and understanding. But there are other and probably older forms of knowledge that we also have the opportunity to tap into. This is new that we need to try and find them all at once you know, that we can have that scientific understanding alongside a more awestruck, gentle understanding that doesn't know. And it's about holding, paradoxically, knowing and not knowing at the same time. One of our previous guests, John Maida, made this interesting distinction between complicated problems and complex problems. And so like science would be complicated, engineering would be complicated. There's a lot of factors to consider, but they're ultimately knowable. Whereas complex problems may have fewer factors, but they're sort of unknowable because it's the way that they all interact. So you might think of art as a complex problem. Relationships are a complex problem. Nuclear physics is a complicated problem. And as you're talking, (laughs) it strikes me that maybe humanity's made great strides in addressing complicated problems, but I'm not sure we're any better off than we were 2000 years ago, you know? And actually, I would say that maybe we're worse at complex problems than we used to be because we've become very resistant to acknowledging each other's humanity and each other's kind of frailties as humans. You know, we've become very punitive about deviation from the true path. And that's something we need to get back, that people can be good and do bad things at the same time or do things that we just merely disagree with and think things that we disagree with. And that's complexity. You know, complexity is knowing that you can't always win, that there's not always a winning strategy. That's a lovely distinction. I love that. Yeah, what's interesting what you just said, though, is like we have so much more knowledge at our fingertips and we also have much more awareness than we did before, which I think can be fortunate and unfortunate, right? Like you think of like historical figures and, you know, when wars were happening or when decisions were made, people would hear like through hearsay or maybe through a new, like, you know, even like later on through a newspaper, like the day after. Now things are so instantaneous. And I think that makes us almost quicker to judge, right? Is we know what's happening. There's no time. There's no filter. It's just, here's the information. And now people are so much quicker to judge. And I don't think have the time to like actually sit and absorb 
what's happening or if it's a big deal or if it's not a big deal, you know, like everything just seems so dramatized. And there's also the sense within that environment that we're under pressure to respond quickly to and that that response is really visible. So if, for example, I don't say something about the war in Ukraine when it breaks out on Instagram, people are going to notice me not saying it and might even comment. And you do see these instances of people you know, contacting other people saying, you didn't say anything about this news event, why? And actually, there's loads of good reasons not to say anything about huge, shattering events very quickly and to actually spend some time gathering information, considering how accurate that information is and thinking about what your response to it might be. Like, there's no sense in which that has to be instant or it should be instant or is instant actually and of course then we end up in this kind of hot take culture where everyone's trying to say something smart rather than necessarily real right and the expectations are just so different right like you are expected to respond now and it's like how did we get there isn't the right response better than a fast response i mean sometimes i have nothing to say about things i'm feeling them you know, I might be feeling grief about something or horror, but there aren't words to communicate that. And in a simpler society, at those moments, we might all find ourselves gathering on the common space and just being together. But in an online world, we have to verbalize it. And that actually puts a distance between our understanding and our expression that becomes quite dangerous, I think over time and, and aggregated across millions of events. It's causing us pain, actually. Yeah. Catherine, in your book, there's a quote that really resonated with me. You were talking about your childhood. There's a passage, like a moment where you are observing something beautiful, craving something beautiful. And you said that the response that you got from adults was beauty is impractical. It's not for everyday folk like us. I grew up in the Midwest farm towns. <laughs> Everything is very functional and it's not beautiful. And as a child, like I just craved a beautiful thing and it's with me today. And I'm curious, like if that is something you carried into your adulthood where you want to be in a beautiful environment, think about, you know, what do you see? What do you interact with on a daily basis? And how does that create enchanted moments for you? Yeah, that's so interesting because I, I remember as a child craving beauty, but not being certain of my own ability to judge what was beautiful. I had this strong sense that I was getting it wrong, you know, and that I was investing all my awe into slightly tacky things almost or, or things that weren't beautiful. And, and, you know, I grew up in a very industrial landscape. Our house was on the marshes, and I already knew that loads of adults found those marshes very bleak, whereas I found them beautiful, and I loved the colourscape, and I loved the wateriness of them, and I loved the huge skies that they create. There were views across the marsh to Essex at the other side of the River Thames, and big power stations, and huge container ships that would sail through. And other people found that completely unlovely. But I found it so magical because at night the factories would have lights up their chimneys and, and there were these beautiful strings of lights going into the sky, which I just loved seeing every night. And I loved the way that the massive ships could sail through what looked like the solid land of the marsh, you know. And I, for me, that, that landscape was amazing. You know, as I grew older, I realised how degraded people saw my landscape that I loved so much. But actually, as soon as I started writing, I started wanting to make an account of those places and explain why they were beautiful. As I was writing Enchantment, I, you know, I returned to that because I could really feel the gap. And of course, after a few years of adulthood, I moved to somewhere that is more beautiful, you know, that is by the sea and that is valued by other people and whose housing market is booming because of it, because everyone wants to be in this beautiful place. But I still felt this huge loyalty towards those landscapes of my childhood. And I 
I really wanted to assert the sort of democracy of those places, and ha- and it really is in the eye of the beholder because I know, I know from living on this planet for long enough that when I was a child, this beautiful town that I live in was considered a rough old place that nobody wanted to go to. And the only reason it's brewing now is because loads of artists moved into all of the very cheap houses that nobody else wanted to buy. And suddenly it's like, you know, in the top 10 places to live in the country on every survey. And it's like, yeah, that's all you need to know about our relationship with beauty. It's totally socially determined. And if you look further back into the Victorian era, Beaches and mountains were not seen as beautiful necessarily. They were seen as as quite terrifying and remote and isolated. And it was only with the Romantics that we began to get this narrative of, of the sublime and of these places that are beautiful because they are so like awe-inspiring in the old sense, which is like they can overcome you. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to reclaim some spaces or a right to find different places beautiful and our places beautiful and I think it's the ourness that the ownership of those places not financial ownership but knowledgeable ownership of those places that actually draws out the beauty quite often we'll be right back after this word from our sponsors Meredith I've recently become a really big fan of Athletic Greens and their product AG1 Have you tried it, Meredith? Yeah, I've tried it. And I have to say, I look forward to taking it every day now. Yeah, for me, you know, the idea of having one super research drink that has everything I need, it's got all the vitamins and minerals that I need, prebiotics, probiotic, it's good for gut health, you're keeping your immune system tuned up and just like feeling your best. The idea of that being in one single drink that I can take every day in the morning is very attractive. Yeah. And you know what else I really love is that AG1 is just one scoop that you put in eight ounces of water. It's not like you have to go out and buy a million different supplements and keep taking all of these pills. You've just got everything in one scoop. So it's so nice and convenient. And it's also so much more affordable. And it actually tastes good too. I mean, I enjoy drinking it every morning along with my coffee. And when I travel, you know, they give you these great travel packs so I can just slip it in my duffel bag when I'm visiting family, going on vacation. I've got it with me, so I'm always at my best. So if you're curious and want to check out Athletic Greens like Aaron and I and their AG1 formula, there's no better time to do it than now. You'll get a year's supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five travel packs for free. So go to athleticgreens.com slash reconsidering and get your AG1 today. That's athleticgreens.com slash reconsidering. Now back to the show. I want to dig into this concept of beauty a little bit, and this is a gigantic philosophical question, but yeah. you know, wow. you were okay, just take a of tea for that. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I mean, you were just talking about beauty in largely in the context of natural landscapes, a little bit of architectural landscapes, but obviously beauty applies in a whole range of things from art to literature to music. Like do you have some thoughts on like what the essence is of what it means to, like the real essence of beauty? What is it that we're responding to? What is it we're trying to describe when we say that we find something beautiful? It's such a huge question. And I, there was a whole year that I meditated on the line, beauty is truth and truth beauty from Keats's Ode to a Grecian. I found that a really interesting line to unpick. Are things beautiful because they tell some kind of a truth, you know, and is that what we see? Or does beauty give something a sense of truth But I think that beauty is so complex. I mean, it is so subjective on one hand, but it's also so socially determined. And we know that because when we look across societies, like physical beauty in humans is different across different societies. And the West has spread this very specific definition of human beauty, which hasn't always existed and which doesn't still exist in any objective sense. And the same is true for every art form. You know, I mean, I used to work in the Tate in London with all of the modernist paintings. And 
even then, like a hundred years later, they still felt so new to the people I was bringing into the gallery. I used to work with Goulpath, this is a writer in there. And you'd bring children in and it would be their first encounter with abstract art. And they were horrified by it in, in exactly the same way that probably their grandparents would have been when they first encountered it too. But spending time with them and un unpacking what those, or the processes by which they were made and what the artists were thinking about and getting them to just spend actually just a little more time looking at those paintings would reveal the beauty. And so beauty is so linked with what our community thinks. It's linked with knowledge and understanding. It's linked to the quality of attention that we're willing to give to it. And it's such a free-floating, morphing thing. And I find that really exciting about it, actually, because that then means that I can take my notion of beauty and find it, go looking for it everywhere. But do you think there's like, like as a child, when you talked about that landscape where you grew up and the ships and things like that, like socially people didn't find that beautiful, but there was something, you were having some emotional reaction to it that you are now labeling as beautiful, as beauty. And I'm, I guess I'm just trying to unpack what is that emotional reaction you were having? That's so interesting, isn't it? Because it, it's like a sense of, I mean, for me, I keep coming back to this word magic, but there is a link towards that that there's a mysterious quality to those things that they are transcendent in a way that you don't have a kind of full understanding of if that makes sense like you can't work out how they work like why is this ship beautiful to me well I don't know but there's something about the way it's moving and there's something about the way that it's surprising and there's something about the way that it's huge you know <laughs> and that's the closest I can get maybe beauty and mystery are intrinsically linked somehow like how does that come about that seems to be the question behind a lot of beauty i think this goes to the heart of your book and to the question that meredith asked earlier you, you said it already that it's about the attention that you give to it and meredith asked that question earlier about like unlearning it's like beginning again and as a child it's easy to encounter that enchantment and beauty because all you're doing is beginning. And the reason why adults don't see that beauty is because they can't see it anymore. They've seen it a hundred times, a million times, and they just, they don't have that beginner's mind or the fresh eyes to see that. But to me, beauty is really about carefully considering something. It's like giving a thing your attention, giving yourself to that experience in a very open way, which again, you know, that's the way you described it earlier. And that ultimately is enchantment. Enchantment and beauty, it's like they're almost inseparable. Yeah. It's really interesting to unpack this. And I, I'm thinking that there's something about beauty and otherness. Like beauty is maybe a quality that we don't see in ourselves and, and that therefore it, it becomes very luminous. But also there's this sense of beauty being something that merits return that you could keep looking at it and find new things within it or that you could keep feeling that pull of it over time rather than something that is attractive on initial glance but then uninteresting afterwards and that links us back to complexity that you know true beauty is complex rather than simple i think <laughs> I like that distinction to like beauty does not equal attractiveness because in our professional lives, we work in the design environment and we often try to say design is not decoration. And like the best design, you unpack it over a period of time and you develop a relationship with it because you understand the multidimensionality of it. And it's true as you like, as you become more and more familiar with a, with a complex piece of music like Box Goldberg variations, or as we were discussing before we started recording is, you know, a chess game, you know, a chess game can be quite beautiful, but you have to understand chess. <laughs> so there's, yes. a, there's an investment. That's right. Isn't it? That Like the more you invest, the more it rewards you. There's not a point where you're like, oh, I just know everything about this now. And it's actually quite boring. It's quite bland. Chess is one of those kind of deep territories that you can inhabit over a whole lifetime, I think. 
or I can't because it makes no sense to me at all. But I gather other people can. <laughs> <laughs> but that you know that's the way that like maths is beautiful, isn't it? It's very similar, and and that music is beautiful because it bears a huge amount of unpacking and exploration and mining. It can hold up to that. To go back to your earlier point about the velocity of modern life and how we feel like we have to constantly react to everything that's coming at us. I sometimes feel like from an art perspective that we're way over indexed on attractiveness and we've forgotten <laughs> about beauty. Like I can't remember the last time I saw a photograph, although I see more photographs than I ever have in my life. I can't remember the last time I saw one that really stuck with me because they're just eye candy, but they don't have any meaning behind them. They're not really beautiful. There's the saturation that's happening with photographs in particular, actually, isn't there? Or, you know, with anything visual, I mean, I don't think we've fully made a reckoning with the way that the internet has drawn on the arts. You know, there's more writing happening than ever and being consumed. There's more visual imagery. You know, photographs are kind of strewn around websites decoration now. They're not inviting our contemplation in any way. I logged on to my bank yesterday and there was a picture the Fed put in their header, a giant picture of a woman on a swing. And I thought there's something off about that image. She got an extra elbow. And as I looked more closely, she didn't have an extra elbow. She only had the top half of her clothes on and her bottom half was naked. And so you could just see the bund of her hip and her thigh and basically the side of her bum, right? And I looked at that for one, I thought, they didn't realise that she was half naked at all. This is not the image they thought they put up. Like they've searched for this bland image of a woman looking happy on a swing, and she's naked. She's <laughs> and I, I think that tells us a lot about the way we're deploying imagery in this world. That someone's made a really fast decision about that and has not spent any time looking to see if you know her butt is on view. <laughs> <laughs> made me really happy I screenshot it and I thought shall I send it to them shall I not I just can't decide (laughs) (laughs) you were silent after that (laughs) (laughs) but yeah I mean I isn't like doesn't that reveal such a lot about how we're treating beauty and that's the difference isn't it there was a pretty girl doing a very decorative thing on a swing but even the person putting it on that website for everyone to see didn't spend any time with it. And it didn't merit that level of attention. Do you think you could have written this book without the pandemic? If you play things <laughs> back to 2019, I guess it was, and this thing hadn't erupted, where do you think we'd be today? Where do you think you'd be today? I don't think I'd have gone in that direction. The big vulnerable core of this book is me thinking about how I can live a spiritual life, like my or contemplating like my urge towards that, which was so uncomfortable for me. And it was a place that I had big walls built around in my psyche that said, you know, that's a no-go area. That's that's not your business. That's never going to be a part of you that's going to change. And that space that opened up in the pandemic, the thing that kept coming back to me like a haunting was this notion of like god and not you know not feeling like i had a belief that was reflected in any of the religions i'd encountered or any of the kind of more dispersed spiritualities that i'd encountered but nevertheless it kept coming back and it was so insistent that's one of the things that made this book possible was the point of surrender to that and of saying this is not going to go away. I can't make these things go away. I, I need to engage with it. It's requiring it of me. You just used the word surrender, which brought me to something that I was going to ask you. In the book, you talk about, I think it's pronounced Meniere's disease. Is that how you pronounce Meniere's it? Meniere's disease, yeah. Meniere's disease. Yeah. And, you know, I suffer from chronic migraine. So that part just okay. like really, yeah. really hit close to me. And I'm wondering how you feel about this essence of kind of letting go, right? Like, so for me, chronic migraines is chronic pain. And there's kind of this sense of loss, right? Where you think that you can do everything or you think that you are going to be someone, but in reality, you turn out to be somebody different. And I'm curious, like, 
how have you coped with things like this? And like, what kind of gets you through this? And especially writing this book. I mean, you write about it, you talk about it. I think it's important for people to hear this because I don't think it's something that's talked enough about. Yeah, living with a chronic illness. I'm not, that's not my only chronic illness as well. And it's so hard to communicate to people that don't have a constraint on them like that, that there is nothing you can do. Once you have this in place and you've been to the doctor and you've got the medication, you've got the best medication there is, you know, you've researched all the treatments and you're doing that, you're following every regime that can keep you feeling as well as you can and you're still sick and you're still getting sick regularly and you have to give in to that. There was no more you can do than say, okay, for like five days every month, which is was roughly the frequency I was living with before, it, it's actually, I mean, going to touch wood, it's, it's doing okay at the moment. I am going to be incapacitated. And anything I do will make it worse. Like over and above what I'm already doing, it will make it worse. And in addition to that, there is stuff in my everyday life that can trigger it. And that makes it worse too. So I just need to not do that. <laughs> you know. I don't think that kind of illness is very visible in our society. And I don't think we know how to talk about it in a way that just acknowledges it as it is. I mean, I, I don't know about you. I'd love to hear experience of this, but I find people saying to me, perhaps you should go to the doctor. And it's like, I've been to the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Have you tried an acupuncturist? Have you tried a chiropractor? Uh, Have you tried this? Yeah. Have you tried that? You know, it's, I think it's people's way of like trying to be helpful. Whereas somebody who's got the chronic illness, it's like, trust me, like we've like, I've covered all bases. Like this is how it's yeah. going to be. And it's like, I'm going to need time off when this happens. It's not surmountable and it's not human weakness to give into it when it comes. But I also know that the times I spend lying on the sofa with this stupid head that I can't read, I can't look at the telly, I can't look at my phone, I can't talk to people. I some of my most creative times <laughs> because that respite, it's actually a very helpful rhythm for me as a writer that I, I literally sit and I have to think. I can maybe listen to podcasts if I'm not asleep. I don't even mind it, honestly, anymore. But that's because I've had to rearrange my life to be set up around it. And when I was teaching full time, it was incredibly difficult. I've made sure my work is like that. That's no coincidence. I have that flexibility for when I am lying on the floor with my feet on the sofa and the world is spinning. Yeah. Mm. I wonder if you would really relate to this condition differently if you were alive 500 years ago. Because, you know, one of our, <laughs> here in Sedia, who was on one of our oh, yeah. earlier shows, yeah, in his book, Life is Hard, he, he talks about how we should relate to people who have physical differences and should we pity them? And he was saying, no, you shouldn't. That's just their reality. I'm not trying to be unsympathetic, but your reality includes being offline for five days a month. Now, it's not physically visible to the rest of us, so we don't know how to account for that for you. And again, I'm not being unsympathetic. I'm just trying to explore this philosophically. I just wonder 500 years ago, that would have just been reality for you in the same way that you might be short or you might be, my wife was born with hip dysplasia and they could fix it through this miraculous surgery. 500 years ago, she would have been a cripple. I think actually I'd go further than that and say that we can make very different meanings around those kind of like illnesses that come in interludes like mine does. I think we'd have made different meaning around it at different times and that there is the world in which those meanings could actually be quite positive. You know, it might have been seen as, you know, I might have been seen as a seer or something <laughs> during those times. I might have been seen as, you know, going into a trance state or, or something like that or that pattern of withdrawal might have been seen as a spiritual time and and that's actually how I try and account for it now that you know the tendency is to see it through the lens of 21st century capitalist society which is that this is a period of unproductivity and that that comes with like a financial cost and it's inconvenient to the people that I'm working with perhaps whereas actually given that my work is quite freeform and I get the opportunity to decide what it means. There's a little bit of me now that thinks, okay, I'm going through one of these phases in my life. I know it will end. I trust it. I understand it. I can make beautiful things within it because I'm actually going to spend a few days in my head 
I get to make the meanings around that now. But I've, I've had to work to put myself in the position where I can. And that's not something that everyone can do. I, I totally get that. I was fascinated by some of the observations you had in the book about like the monoliths or the large kind of artifacts of ancient human history that are in your area that you see. And just the idea of connecting to the bigness of human history, like, you know, just like recognizing that your life, which is just all consuming of your attention, your experience and so forth. And yet it's such a small, you know, just a grain of sand in, in a sea of, of humans who have come before us. And I don't know, I, I wondered if you, if you could just share some of your observations about feeling part of the lineage of human history. Yeah, there's a bit in the book where I go and visit a sort of ancient pilgrim's well. And the history we know of it dates back to the 1400s. But it's pretty clear that it was probably a sacred spring before then. So it could even be prehistoric, potentially. This place is significant that people have gone to. And I mean, one of my observations is that where I live in the UK, because we're very close to Canterbury, we are so surrounded in ancient history that we barely even noticed it. You know, that a, a well like that can be this totally unremarked location that's hidden behind a bush <laughs> and nobody knows about it. And that tells us something about our complacency, I think. But also it's, it's a real invitation to go and find those places, go and seek them out. Because, I mean, we have the most incredible mapping system called Ordnance Survey, which notes absolutely every landscape feature like that. And it even marks ancient sites that are now invisible that have been dismantled or ploughed over. And isn't it exciting to think about, you know, as this world is getting remade, which it clearly is, there's some kind of revolutionary force going through us at the moment. And one of the things that we can do is return to these places that have been in continuous use for millennia and make new ways of worshipping around them and make new meanings in them and, and tend to them in that distant way that says they're no longer anything to do with us, but we're going to look after them as a museum piece. But to actually go back and practice with them again and integrate with them and bring them into our lives in a gentle way i find that so exciting and you know the american landscape is full of these things too it's just that they're maybe not as well recorded so Catherine, you may recall from the last time that we asked you a final question <laughs> which dovetails beautifully to what you were just saying because i think the essence of what you were saying is did we know something then that we've kind of forgotten now and so i'd ask you to once again <laughs> try to bring forth 25 <laughs> year old Catherine into your memory okay. And try to imagine her and ask yourself, if you were to sit down and hang out with her for a little while, what do you think she knew that Catherine today has perhaps forgotten? You know what? This is a really live issue for me because I'm going to answer this in a long way instead of a short way. I'm so sorry. But I was going through my Instagram stories archive yesterday for the month running up to the pandemic. And, you know, obviously like your stories archives are visible to other people. I already thought in those three years that that person knew stuff that I didn't. She was so much lighter and she was so much less self-conscious about what she was saying. Like she was willing to be funny and she wasn't checking on herself so much. And I already thought that person could tell me something about today. And to go right back to being 25... I can barely even connect myself to that person then because there's a lot of ways in which I wasn't taking care of myself. But there are loads of ways in, in that I felt physically freer to go and do things that I just wanted to do in that moment. And of course, I've had children since and all that kind of thing and that those constraints have been necessary. I think she could tell me that I could go out wearing crazy clothes and crazy makeup and enjoy that without over worrying about what was being presented there and without thinking I'm too old for this now <laughs> and you know what it takes us back to everything everywhere all at once because I watched Joy in that and all her amazing makeup looks 
And I thought, I don't want to die without wearing sparkly eyeshadow again. That's what 25-year-old me would have taught me and would tell me now, like, go and get some lovely sparkly eyeshadow. Where the hell out of it? (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) Thank you, Catherine. What a great place to end. But before we do conclude, where can people learn more about you and your book and that newsletter you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation? And and your podcast. And our podcast. I am also everything, everywhere, all at once. So you can find my book in all good bookshops, as we say in England. I have a podcast called How We Live Now, which is just about going to a new season. And my newsletter is katherinemay.substack.com. And I spend a lot of time writing things on there. And I'm easy to find. Fantastic. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much. I love talking to Catherine. I hope she keeps writing books because we always have such rich conversations. Lots of takeaways. Curious, Meredith, maybe we'll start with you, what you walked away with. Yeah. You know, I think the one thing that I love talking with her about is like things get so philosophical and so deep so quickly, but she's just so incredibly relatable, you know, and she's so honest and she's so approachable. And I think that's why I love her books so much is that I feel like I'm kind of part of this journey with her and that like she's bringing me along, but that she's also kind of part of my journey as well. And so I don't know if there's anything necessarily new that I've learned other than, you know, what I try to keep repeating to myself as she reiterated, which is like, sometimes you need to let go. Sometimes you need to embrace beauty and, you know, sometimes you just have to be kind to yourself. Yeah, especially when you're, you know, sick and there's there's just no way around it. Yeah. It's just the brute reality. Yeah. Bob, how about you? Well, I'm looking back through my notes and there's kind of two really interesting themes. There was the one we got in there, got into there towards the end about beauty, which maybe we'll come back to in a second. But I think the early part of the conversation, she was trying to unpack this idea, or at least we asked her about the theme through her books. And she said that she thought the theme that held them all together was this question of how do we make a good life now? The way she talked about the books kind of revealing themselves to her, like she didn't go into them thinking she had the right answer. She was just writing and fragments were appearing. And then she was trying to bring them together later. It reminded me a little bit of uh, Michelangelo's statement about he's trying to release the form from the marble. He's not trying to make the marble fit the form, so to speak. I thought that was just interesting. She had this great quote. What she's trying to do is to reflect the insights in my head onto the page, right? And I thought that was this interesting, technique's the wrong word, but it's this interesting process she has where she's trying to uncover and reflect back to us, the reader, like kind of what's happening in her own authentic internal journey towards this question of answering for herself, what does it mean to live a good life? There was something about the openness and the uncertainty and the just super authentic curiosity that I thought was really interesting that I think accounts for why her books are so fascinating to read. They're not trying to tell you the exact answer. They're sort of like, it's more like a travel log of someone's emotional journey. I think it opens the reader up to putting themselves on that journey as well. Yeah, it's like each of her books is an exercise in discovery. It kind of reminds me of what Koshik Panchal told us a few episodes back, maybe a couple seasons back, Trust the Process. She writes and she continues to write. She's not sure what the story is. She doesn't know the sequence. She doesn't know how it fits together. She doesn't know the themes. But it is like, I'm going to write. This is my process. I'm going to pay attention. And paying attention is really what this enchantment book is about. It's about, you know, giving your attention to the things that are not productive, that are not practical, that are really just about discovery and letting yourself be consumed by those ideas or those experiences. That I definitely think is a message for the world right now, that we just don't really let ourselves do that. I like the framing of our time, that it's a time where we want certainty and where we can mostly get certainty, you know? And now we have artificial intelligence and these tools that kind of take us closer to certainty quicker or the perception of certainty quicker. And 
I think it misses some key elements of life that not everything is countable, measurable, quantifiable. There's a lot of beauty in wonder. That's the richness of life that we lose if we're always looking for the fact. Yeah, one of the statements she made towards the end that really stuck with me, we were talking about her uh, chronic diseases and stuff and how she has to lay on the couch for days on end every month. And she had this lines about, yeah, we tend to see it through the lens of 21st century capitalism, which is focused on productivity. And that really hit me because I'm like, yeah, like so much of how we live our lives, even when she was talking about as a child, like people didn't think that there was beauty in the industrial landscape or that we didn't have time for beauty. You mentioned that, Aaron, that like people around you just didn't think beauty was something that was practical. And it's because they're like seeing everything through this lens and we all do it. Like this show is largely about this. It's through this, you know, how do we stop seeing ourselves and our lives and our time and our energy and our relationships through this lens of productivity? How do we escape this, you know, gigantic social model of capitalism that we've all been born into and inhabits every nook and cranny of our being? Yeah, like life is some machine that we insert stuff into and expect a productive widget on the other side, and it just doesn't work that way. I liked the phrase, some of the most certain people are also the most dangerous. That I find to be true as well. Yeah, that's absolutely true. No, 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 you know, which, which I, I'll say that with absolute certainty. Is that the, the certain <laughs> people are the most dangerous ones, and I'm certain about it. <laughs> you know, just to return to the, the other theme that I thought was really fascinating was when we started talking about the nature of beauty and what we mean about beauty. And she got to an interesting place there about it's a, you know, there's something about beauty that's a form of magic, something that's unknowable and transcendent, and that beauty was not attractiveness. And I think as a creative person moving through the modern world, I, I don't have a lot of things that are being identified in current modern culture that are producing movies, music, books, whatever, that I, personally I find beautiful. Now, I'm sure that there's, you know, different people will find different things in the landscape that are interesting, but I, I just keep going back to older things for whatever reason that are more, at least to me, more multidimensional. And I do find beauty in, you know, maybe odd things like chess, baseball, you know, these sorts of systems that you have to, understand deeply to really appreciate them. But when you do appreciate them, it just unlocks a really beautiful thing. So to bring us home, I'd like to know from each of you, what in your life right now brings you the most enchantment in your daily life? Where do you find enchantment the most? I'm going to say my dog. <laughs> this is a, a slightly longer answer, but a few years back, I set my New Year's resolution to be trying to see the world through other people's eyes. And I took that quite literally, like try to put myself into other people's skulls and see what they were seeing when they were talking to me. And eventually turned into sort of this meditation on, and realization that everyone is having their own sensory experience that is completely different from mine and inherently unknowable. And that eventually tracked down to my dog, who's lived with me in the same house for 14 years and has had a radically different experience from anything I could ever possibly imagine. So when I'm out with Tomo and we go for a walk and I see him sniffing things or like, you know, interacting in the environment or he sees something in the backyard that gets his attention or even just the way he moves through the house with certain expectations about what's going to happen next, I am completely enchanted by what is going on with him. Like it is completely unknowable to me and it is absolutely fascinating because he is having a completely perfect response to the experience that he's having. And it is fundamentally, 100%, completely, utterly unknowable to me. You know, I think the one thing that's been interesting living in California the past several months is what we're on our 12th atmospheric river, which brings a lot of interesting situations that I don't think us Californians have had to deal with, or at least to this extreme. But the one thing that I absolutely love about it is that there's this creek by my house that when we moved down here four years ago, it's been bone dry. And just being able to walk by it every single day and hear the water just like going... I don't know. It just brings me so much joy and so much happiness just to see kind of like life is still moving. And even though there's all these like, you know, climate issues happening that like there's still some beauty in it. 
and it's almost to the point where it's motivated me to actually go on even more walks than I already do, which I didn't know was even possible, just so I can see the creek, just so I can hear the water, and just so I can see like where the level is and like get my hopes up of it's going to be like a little bit higher tomorrow if it rains again, or it's going to be a little bit lower, and just like really enjoying this moment whether it's like another week that this creek runs or another month, but just really being in the moment and enjoying something as simple as that in nature. That's great. Water is really healing. I don't know. It's just so, healing. yeah, feels yeah. so good for me. I get a lot of enchantment from music, listening to it, being curious about like how it's made, like how it's built They're like the math and the architecture inside of it, which, you know, I listened to music my whole life and didn't really understand how it was constructed and trying to learn to play an instrument, you know, coordinate my body with an object and, you know, get a lot of different things going on and just like getting lost in a moment of feeling, you know, having fun, having fun playing something and seeing that get better and better over days and months of practice. That's, that's just really cool. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.